You're like, hey man, we're just we're just fucking here, man. We're just in it together. Better will work, man. I just want to be in it, man. Maybe children are ignorant of the way the world really works, but they're not necessarily ignorant of the way that it should be. Hey, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California. We studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast we bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week, we are going to be delving into an article. Uh, for people who out there who might not be interested in the stone, Troy, can you tell people what the stone is? Um, you're referring to the New York Times section and not the definite description of some random object in the universe yeah both you choose yeah so if we're referring to the former then the stone is just i mean from what i know it's a philosophically oriented uh editorial column in the new york times which yeah oftentimes sucks yes would would you agree with me on that (laughs) yeah like i got really excited a couple of years ago when they announced it and then i actually i ordered the ebook version of the collected volume have you seen that are you familiar with no, that no i did not know that existed yeah because because i was doing whenever i when i went back to california when i was living abroad uh for like short periods of time i would drive like uber lyft and you know when i was driving around i was like oh i want stuff to listen to and so i was like i'm gonna listen to this edited volume of contemporary issues on philosophy i was like that'll be like cutting edge and exciting and interesting and it was really just like kind of stale and kind of boring and kind of like really conservative and I don't mean conservative politically but I just mean more intellectually conservative stuff and I was like eh it wasn't that great like it, it like 30% of the stuff was was really good you know and then the other 70% I was like ah oh, all right I guess I'll wade through this as much as possible but um but still I think it's great that at least there's like weekly or daily or however frequent it is opinion pieces that are being written in a popular news publication that's good Yeah, it does seem like it's, I mean, this is kind of the hazard of public philosophy in general, right? When you try really hard to do public philosophy, oftentimes it just kind of comes off. I don't know. I don't know if if patronizing is the right term. I don't think it's that extreme, but it just comes off like it's, it's trying to shoehorn something philosophical into something public rather than being an authentic public philosophy, meaning philosophy that's, you know, intrinsically public. I mean, maybe part of the reason is that this is one of the problems of of certain elements of academic philosophy is that I think a lot of it tries to do that is it's it's like trying to force itself into the public conversation rather than being an authentic expression that is like issuing from concerns or anxieties that exist within the material sphere and then it's trying to then brand itself as being super important and relevant even though you're kind of like eh I mean try it's a little try hard and maybe that's kind of what I'm sensing when I'm identifying it as a little conservative. Yeah, and then the, the results kind of come out typically as, you said, conservative. And I take that as meaning something like really just kind of rehashing uh, particular yeah. points that already exist in the cultural discourse. Um, which means it's, it's not really doing the philosophical job of challenging or problematizing yes. or, you know, the, the the Socratic method, right, of creating aporia, the confusion that then results eventually, hopefully, in wisdom. And so when you don't do that, it just comes off as like half-baked kind of, you know, sociology or something like that. 
Yeah, and it and it bums me out because you know I I read a lot about like uh, French publications like Le Temps Moderne that was this cutting edge, you know, on the cusp of things that are going on politically and artistically and philosophically, and you've got all these amazing figures in the history of philosophy that are contributing. And then in the American version, you have these amazing figures in the contemporary landscape of philosophy in the English-speaking world, and it's like, it just doesn't have that same buzz to it. And I, and, and it kind of bums me out. I, I mean, I'm sure there are multiple factors as to why it doesn't have that buzz, but it just... Maybe I, I've set the like the benchmark has been set by think publications like Le Temps Moderne and it doesn't live up to that. So maybe that's why I'm ultimately a little dissatisfied with it. But why are we bitching about this? This it, this isn't my shitty minute. What the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> um, you were but anyway, yourself, not me. I know, I know. But anyway, we're gonna talk about an article that maybe does actually give us some interesting stuff to think through. That kind of bucks that. Uh, trend a little bit by Martin Hagland about uh, mortality. What's the title of the article? Why Mortality Makes Us Free. Interesting. And it's basically a summary from his newest book that recently just came out. Um, so we'll delve into some of the stuff that he talks about in that uh, in our main segment. And that book's called Afterlife by Ricky Gervais, I think, right? <laughs> oh, Is no, I'm, right? I'm, I'm confusing that with uh, yeah, something else. Sorry. Have you have you watched that? Uh, no, no, and I will not. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mean to get on my high horse here, but no, I will not. No, and you shouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> Why were you hoping of putting it on your queue? No, it just keeps popping up when I put my thing on. Like Netflix is really pushing it hard on me. Yeah, they they know you from your um your previous watches that that's that's something you're totally into. I don't you know, really how. Want to know how. You really want to know how hard life is for a rich, successful white atheist. You know what? I just changed my shitty minute. I got it. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, dude, we got a few uh, few uh, programming notes we got to take care of. Oh, okay. What do we got to do? So you know, and listeners out there, you know as well, that if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes and you ask a question in your review, as long as the question is something that's brief and we can answer in a one or two-minute span, we will do so and read your uh, review on the air. So we have a new review from iTunes from Trey from Louisiana. I do have an affinity for people uh, named Trey who are from the South. (laughs) Uh, And Trey writes... Recent philosophy grad here and new regular listener. I especially appreciated your metamodernism episode some time back, so shout out to you, Austin. Uh, that's how I found y'all, he says. Any chance of trying to grab some more folks from that vein? So I guess that's a question for you since I don't even know who that would entail. And then also, I can't stress enough how crucial it is to have thoughtful people, perhaps even cussing with impunity. That's definitely us. Reacting mm-hmm. to this political moment, it's so hard to get a considered long-arching approach to current affairs, and you guys are uniquely positioned there. Any podcasts you guys have been getting into lately? So about two questions there. One, um, who are some other people in this metamodernism vein that you would find worthy of following? Do you have any anybody in mind there? Well, so I was in conversation with a guy named Luke Turner. Are you familiar with Luke? No, I'm not. So Luke is part of Shia LaBeouf's art collective. It's Shia, Luke, and then I think her name is Nastia is the third person that's a part of their group. Um, he's an artist from London and stuff, and he is one of the co-authors of the Meta Modern Manifesto. And we were in contact over uh, Twitter for a bit, and he was interested in coming on and podcasting. But he recently unfollowed me, and I don't know if it's because of uh, 
support for certain political positions that he's been very outspoken against. But I have I have a feeling there's been a certain shitstorm that has been going on online and um, it has implicated somebody or let's say it has, I would say, wrongly accused somebody that I am relatively close with. And um, I kind of acted in defense, very subtly, but still acted in defense of this person. And uh, and then Luke was has been critical, not of this person, but of some um, some people within this person's circle. And then there was an open letter written about this person that she got dragged into. And um, and Luke was then very sort of ag- aggressively uh, in opposition to. Um, to not this person per se, but to um, apparently some of this. I'm being so vague that it's probably making this like unclear. Anyway, Luke Turner was hopefully going to come on, um, and uh, and he's recently unfollowed me, so I can't DM him anymore. So <laughs> I was, and I literally was just going to do that just the other day, and it had nothing to do with any of this fallout or anything like that. Like I really had, I didn't want to like engage in this online shitstorm. That's not the way I try to comport myself online. Um, I prefer to talk to people individually. And so uh, if we did have a disagreement, I was going to talk to him, but he unfollowed me. And so now I can't invite him. So if you guys know Luke Turner, tell him that he should come on our podcast. Because even if we do have disagreements at other elements in like the political world, when it comes to this philosophical mood or orientation, as like Seth Abramson kind of referred to it, um, it is something that I would still like to talk with him about because he did, like I say, draft that originally. And he's done a lot of work, especially in the art world. Uh, on kind of like what might be termed metamodern type of art. So hit him up, harass him, tell him to be like, dude, go on uh, Owls at Dawn because they're cool guys and they want to talk with you about metamodernism and shit. But that was the only person. Um, other than that, I haven't been in touch with anybody, but he was the guy that was on my radar. And I literally was hoping to have him on there in the next uh, like month or two. So that was the only thing. So Trey, you know, use the power of the internet and tell Luke that uh, we love him still and he should come on the cast. If you if you denote uh, Luke Turner as an artist from London, do you denote uh, Shia LaBeouf with artist from Tahunga? <laughs> he is from Tahunga, isn't he? For yeah, those who don't know, Tahunga is uh, kind of a POS little uh, <laughs> suburb in Southern California, and it's where I'm from, and also where Shia LaBeouf's from. Didn't wasn't there like a a thing on Twitter where people were like. Could you get into a fight with the most? Could you win in a fight with the most famous person in your hometown? And you said Shia was the guy that was the most famous in your hometown. Yeah, he's the only person people. I've ever heard of that's famous who was from Dahanga for sure. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I and, and it that. makes perfect sense because basically it's all just like meth out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and aren't didn't his parents like grow weed or something like that? Isn't like weren't they big time like weed growers or something? I, know, I, I remember, remember something vaguely about that, but I can't pinpoint it. Yeah, because he talked about it on a couple talk shows or something. I can't remember, but anyway. Well, second part All right, of the so question. You handle, yeah, you handle the second part of the question. Yeah, so any podcasts you've been listening to recently. Um, yeah, I wanted to recommend a couple really quick um, that I've been into uh, very recently in, this, uh, in the new year pretty much. Uh, one is called The Talk House Podcast. And it's a podcast that, of all things, my mom found and thought that I would like. Um, wow. And sent to me. I had no idea what this was, but apparently it's a it's a series that's um run by oh, I forget the guy's name, but he wrote a book called uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life, which is a book about the '80s underground um, in America, music underground like uh, post hardcore, hardcore indie rock, the whole thing in the um, '80s. So like Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Junior, Black Flag, Pixies, basically all my 
favorite groups from you know mm. my kind of nascent era salad days of my musical youth and um he runs this podcast where he gets artists together and then just has them have a conversation with each other um so it's sometimes it gets into kind of an interview style um but most times it's it, when it does well it's just a conversation i mean people who know mm. each other at least a little bit are acquainted with each other in somewhat so like there's been some great ones um like david diggs and uh, black thought have an episode together which is fantastic um David digs from clipping and got famous for being in Hamilton. And of course, Black Thought from the Roots. Uh, there's another great one with um, uh, Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie with Alan Sparhawk of Low. Um, that's near and dear to my heart because I love Low. And, you know, Death Cab's okay. And, uh, and many other episodes um, that are similar and that I really enjoy the conversation between uh, people with, you know, similar experiences. That isn't just a rote interview style where you just answer predetermined questions with predetermined answers. Uh, mm. I appreciate the conversational stuff. So that's one. And then secondly, um, I don't know if you know about this podcast, but it's getting a lot of buzz lately is Hi-Fi Nation. No. It's a philosophy podcast run by, again, I forget the guy's name, but he's a philosophy professor um, here in the States. And um, he started a podcast a couple of years ago where he does like a This American Lifestyle uh, podcast, but about philosophical ideas um and that sounds awful because that sounds basically like what the stone does (laughs) or when Mm. when it's at its worst you know but uh he actually does it really well i think and it's especially good i think for people who um have trouble with the more theoretical approach to uh, philosophical ideas so presenting a theoretical problem and then answering it theoretically for some people is just alienating and difficult to dive Mm. into and uh, he does it by presenting the uh, problems in a more real life scenario existentially and otherwise and then brings out the theoretical problems that are inherent in it and he does it very very well and they're usually like in th- in short 35 to 40 minute um, episodes and it was so popular mm-hmm. it got so popular last year that he got picked up by slate magazine um, to be one of their official podcasts so it, they just started their new season they just had a recent episode on um, offensive words and comparing mm-hmm. um, how um, offense and um and things like that are dealt with legally in australia versus the united states it's not is he australian he was, no but he was uh because there's a large a, a gulf in the approach legally between the two countries he used them as kind of foils for each other um uh-huh. and what's the podcast called hi-fi nation so it's like phi as in philosophy p-h-i oh. so yeah i think that anybody and who's H-I-G-H? interested i g h or no, H-I? H-I. Okay, so it's Hi-Fi instead of F-I. Yeah. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Yeah, I so just any- subscribed. Yeah, so anyone out there who wants to have uh, things that kind of more popular approach to philosophical problems would be interested or would be interested in that, I would definitely recommend Hi-Fi Nation. Do you have any podcasts you've been jonesing on lately? Um, I've mentioned it before in our newsletter, uh, Why Theory. It's Todd McGowan's podcast is kind of one that I've really been into. Other than that, there's nothing new. Uh, there's actually, you know what? Here's one. Philo- how philo- um, It's called Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Are you familiar with this one? I'm not, but I love that title. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Well, and that's so Brian Cook is the guy who hosts it. And that's the first question he asks all of his guests. He says, in what way did philosophy ruin your life? <laughs> and that's kind of how they start. <laughs> but 
Um, he he hasn't been around for like a year-ish. They haven't released a new one, and they just started back up with two new episodes. The most recent episode is with Jason Barker, who's a, a novelist and writer. He I think he wrote or produced, you know, that documentary that was called Mark's Reloaded? But yeah. um, yeah, he did that one. And then he also has a novel. I can't remember what the novel's called, but it's like Mark's something, like Mark's... Mark's Lib- Returns? Returns, that's the one. And it's um, a sort of imaginative reinterpretation of uh like novelization of Marx um and it's a really lovely chat between the two of them um and then you can go through the the past he has interviews with like Justin Clemens who's like a Badiou and Lacan psychoanalysis uh, philosopher here in Australia and um it's a it's a great little podcast that just started back up again so but I would recommend that one because that one's like been reinvigorated but other than that my podcast queue is kind of the same as always and I have a lot of shitty basketball podcasts, so I'm not going to recommend those. Yeah, I got a shitty. I got a lot of like <laughs> dudes just sitting around talking shit. You yeah, know, you can't, no more recommending Joe Rogan, dude. <laughs> no, you know, I got another one that's called Below the Belt that I listen to a lot. It's uh, a former fighter named Brendan Schaub, who he started a podcast called The Fighter and the Kid. He became popular because he's in Joe Rogan's circle. But Brendan is a former UFC fighter, former professional football player. I mean, he was on the practice squad, but he still played professional ball, played college football. And he's got this podcast where he talks about mixed martial arts and boxing and kind of just talks shit sometimes. And I fall asleep to that because sometimes it's nice to just not have philosophy in my ears. So it's, you know, (laughs) haunting your your dreams. Yeah, I'd like to hear dudes talk about like fighting and food and fashion when I fall asleep. The three F's. That's it, man. We should also mention that um, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And we have multiple tiers through which you can support us and the um, rewards that you get. Do we call them rewards or benefits? Uh, benefits. Benefits. Rewards. The benefit. Whatever. Yeah, rewards sounds in some sense, you know, like an unfortunate uh, yeah, usage. Like the benefits you get from supporting us on Patreon are things like the newsletter, which we're going to be releasing very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Maybe released by the time this episode comes out. It will be. Um, Indeed. And uh, also bonus episodes of which we will also have something very soon. Um, And the ability to participate in our next patron-led, our patron-sponsored episode. So again, patreon.com slash owls at dawn, and you can support us, um, help us to uh, keep the quality of the podcast improving, as well as keeping ourselves uh, fed and out of the poorhouse. As much as possible. Yeah, as much as is possible. We are philosophers, so that's kind of like inevitable. <laughs> and we promise we, we don't we don't use it on drugs. So, eh, depends on how much we get. Like you know, if we get to Chapo style, you best believe I'm going to go on some cocaine binged all night uh, philosophy excursions, and then I will report them in my sticky leaves. But that's a long ways. Okay, so it's at least intrinsic to the quality of the podcast at that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you, speaking of Chapo, did you listen to the episode where they went to APAC? I mean, excuse me, to CPAC? Nah, I don't listen anymore. Dude, you should go back and listen to that one. So you see, CPAC yeah. knows the conservative conference. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the guys, uh, Matt Crispin, uh, did LSD and was totally oh off his rocker the whole time at CPAC. <laughs> was, oh, God. It was very hilarious. <laughs> okay, that does sound kind of awesome then. <laughs> oh, God. Well, dude, we got something we got to do to get this podcast started. All right, I'm ready. What do we got to do? We got to do the shitty minute. This is the segment of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? 
Well, like it, there's a little bit of levity, I think, that tends to characterize the shitty minute. But to be honest, I had, you know, a really excellent week. Um, I can't, my life here in Sydney is pretty good. So, um, you know, I, I, all my complaints are usually like minor complaints. Like, oh, people are being dumb on Twitter. And yeah, I do think that there is a substantial undercurrent to those frustrations because they have, I think, in my mind at least, profound negative social impact, which is why they're a part of my shitty minute and not some other happy part of the podcast. But um, this week, man, the only thing that I could even think about to talk about, and I know it's totally shitty and it's somber, and I don't even know how to talk about it, but I just kind of wanted to vent, I guess, and maybe chat with you about it just for cathartic purposes because I didn't really have anyone to talk with in depth about it was just the shooting in New Zealand uh, yesterday. Um, you know, it's it's it's... It's tough too because for people who don't know, there was a, there was a terrorist attack in uh, two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, so I guess four people are in custody, but it was live streamed on the internet. Um, a dude went in and killed at least so far forty nine people are dead, and uh, many more are injured. And you know, one of the women that is in my office space, she's actually Kiwi. And um, so, you know, obviously it hits close to home. New Zealand is a small community, uh, even though she's not living there anymore, but she's got, you know, family and there's attachment. And, you know, there's when that kind of thing occurs, it, it is more personal, I think. You know, just like if there's a shooting in Orange County or in Los Angeles, that's I'm closer to that than if it happens in, I don't know, Barbados, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know. It, it was just really strange. And, <clears throat> these these kind of things like I don't want to I feel like a lot of people's response online and it's so hard because it feels disingenuous a lot of times you know and I don't just mean like the thoughts and prayers stuff but a lot of people they rush so quickly to say something and they need to say it's like it's like we feel like we can control some element of our experience of the trauma of the event through talking um and I, and I do think that there's something important we need to communicate, but I just feel so dissatisfied with the internet as being a space where we're able to adequately engage in that process. But maybe it's the only recourse we have, or maybe it's, it's a way that in 2019 we feel that we can somehow, if not adequately, communicate with others and engage in this uh, reciprocal healing or... Um, sharing or something, I, I, connecting somehow. Um, but I just would rather talk and say something like this over this live with you. And obviously, I know people are listening, but I, I really have nothing else that bothered me this week. I mean, this is the only thing. And then even if I did, this would be the most upsetting thing. But I know it's not like the typical kind of I'm ranting about something. It's more just I don't really know what to say or what to think or what to feel. It's just um, it's kind of I read this uh, this essay recently by uh, China Mieville. Um, I don't know. Did you read the essay that I sent to you? I read parts of it. Yeah, that was yeah. It's it's hell long. long. It's very long. It's very long. But um, I love it. It's it talk. I don't remember what it's exactly called, but it's about like apophatic Marxism and the idea of apophatic is the kind of the beyond the words, you know, the via negativa, the, that which can't be said. But anyway, at one point in the essay, he talks about how you know, that there are these unspeakable horrors that occur. And that's precisely what this is. This is just something unspeakable. It is beyond It is beyond the limits that language impose upon us. But 
Um, I don't really know what to say or what to think. And uh, I don't really have any defined thoughts. I don't have any clever quips. I don't have any words of wisdom. I don't think there's anything to say, but that's the only thing that could even, I don't know, that could even make sense uh, to talk about in in a segment of a podcast where I'm supposed to be talking about something that's bothering me. So that's it, man. And the news probably just hit today, this morning for you guys, right? It hit last night. Oh, it did? Okay. Yeah, I remember reading about it last night. And I don't, the, oh, yeah. the 49 number didn't come in until today, though, I don't think. Right. Yeah, I yeah, had the same. Yeah. Sorry, finish up? No, no, no. I was just going to say it because the first initial report just said substantial people. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I had the same reaction, dude. It's just that, you know, I was thinking about whenever these kinds of things happen, especially when it's somewhere that's not intimately tied to like your own community, the, the immediate reaction is obviously you have this incredible fear and anxiety, right? And so you, usually we cover it up by trying to say something or do something, not necessarily right. to fix it, but like in the, in the, like towards fixing it, pointing towards indicating a way to fix it. And because I know it's not most people, but you know, for people who are extremely online, that's usually how it, that sort of indication that's like the locus or the space of that, of that pointing towards fixing things. And it's just all of it's bad. It just seems like, right. I mean, mm. it's just, it's all trying to kind of cover over the incredible despair that comes from knowing that a thing like this can happen, you know, it can happen anywhere and it's somewhat unpredictable and, it involves a individual or individuals actually intending this kind of and level and degree of harm, which is just unfathomable. And, yeah. you know, when it comes to like imminent threats, you know, like you people like a, you know, a country's invading your country, there's, there's a obvious need to like strategize and get down and dirty and immediately get to work or whatever. But I feel really kind of envious of, especially cultural and religious traditions that have a really defined sense of mourning mourning mm. with a u so like you know sit in shiva right what the mm-hmm. jewish tradition does when when someone passes away this great tragedy happens and there's like what is it seven days of mourning and this kind of really defined cultural space and then anyone can be involved and you're all together and experiencing it at one as one and there's just something really important i think about the process of mourning and understand and like feeling the despair of tragedy rather than immediately turning it into you know a way to score points or um put somebody else down and like there's obviously a good reason to you know sort of make certain or sort of point certain people towards taking blame and making important points about why these things happen and what we can do to ensure that they don't. Those are all super important, but that's not a replacement for mourning, right? Like those, those things have their time and space too. It's not one or the other. And sometimes it feels like because of this whole thoughts and prayers thing that we see from cultural and political leaders, hmm. we associate that sort of thing with just incredible inauthenticity and because right. it is right. And we're, and we rightfully do point that out as inauthenticity, right? But the problem with thoughts and prayers is that that's how it ends. People who actually have power to change things stop there. That's why it's bad. It's not because thoughts and prayers as a, as a signifier for a process of mourning and care. That's not bad. right? It's if you stop there when you have power to do otherwise. 
that that's bad. Or if you have been somebody who has fanned the flames of the tensions that could be viewed as a causal factor or that, that could be identified, let's say, as a causal factor in this horrific crime, and then you're trying to issue thoughts and prayers, then it's kind of like, fuck you, dude. Like, yeah, we, don't, we don't you react dare that, yeah. try to capitalize on this right now. Yeah, we rightfully react to that as bad faith because it is. Right. Um, but then I just think that we we sort of respond and say any sense in which we let ourselves feel something and go through a process of mourning and grief and, and caring for others and feeling empathy is just automatically inauthentic, inauthentic excuse me, because mm. it's feelings and feelings are bad. <laughs> mm. And I don't, yeah. I don't, yeah, that's just, I, I feel part of that too, because I have all the same cynical impulses everybody else on the internet has. Um, mm. But it, it does make you wish a, a bit for a different time. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting, man. I, I've mentioned him and we're going to get him on the podcast here in a couple of weeks, but um, someone that I spend a lot of time with here uh, around uh, at the University of Sydney is a guy named Darius, who I've mentioned is, um, he's a philosopher and We've talked a lot about, uh, you know, he's more of a traditionalist. Um, he is of Iranian descent, and so he has more of a connection to, uh, like, Persian traditions and mysticism and metaphysics and things like that. And one of the things that, that we often discuss is uh, the sort of, my sort of, like, Deleuze and existentialist and post-Marxist leanings sort of in productive tension with his similar concerns, read through a different lens, right? I mean, he's similarly critical of contemporary culture, but part of the reason that he's so critical is that there's a lack of any sort of metaphysical, um, like a direct or explicit metaphysical connection to the material world. And part of me wonders if if he doesn't have some sort of, uh, if there isn't something accurate about what he's saying precisely that is revealed in these instances, that because we don't have recourse to that tradition, to the community, to the family, to the metaphysics, like you were talking about with the Jewish um, uh, practice of mourning, that, that connects us to something more than for us. If we are just viewing humans as bodies, and, and we're going to get into this in the main segment, but if life is just survival, and if we're just trying to make the most of our finite time here, if we're going to be these crude naturalists, um, what does that mean when, when it comes to how it is that we ought to respond? And I to to trauma and i can't help but wonder if what we're seeing with these sort of inauthentic and what we might consider like crude or reductive expressions if it's precisely the outworking of a world that is operating according to a logic of technology or an instrumental logic or some sort of you know neoliberal rationality and i know people use these terms and they seem like buzz terms that don't have meaning but in a way, they are the culmination of a world that is completely devoid or detached from metaphysics or from mythos and to tradition, to community, to to those things that, that previously um, defined the human experience, at least to a greater degree. And and I don't know if, if there's something to that. My only concern then is I don't want to be a traditionalist and go back. You know, I still have that, that modern inclination towards looking forward. Um, even if I think that the notion of, of forward-looking temporality also has inherent problems as well. But you know what I mean? It's that tension of trying to figure out, like, there's something missing, but I don't know that we even have the tools that are culturally available to us to respond in a way that would allow for healing 
in a better way than what is uh, on offer precisely because of certain metaphysical uh, or lack of metaphysical attachments that define our contemporary world. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And it's profoundly alienating to know that the response to this tragedy is in no ways good and that we probably just completely lack the cultural tools to have a good response, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a thing a single person can do. You know, groups of people have to do it together. And we just, and there, I'm sure there are some groups who, who do these things much better than others. And I'm sure that there's, um, you know, Muslim groups in, in New Zealand who are rallying around each other. Um, and that's fantastic. And I love that. And I just don't know that we can emulate that very effectively. We just don't seem to have the means right now. But mm -hmm. I guess that's the one thing you can hope for is, well, it exists and maybe we can try and find ways to build the means to that by mm. destroying the internet. <laughs> yes. Someone, someone tweeted something out yesterday that I loved. He said, uh, can we just print out Wikipedia and then just destroy the rest of the internet? <laughs> I mean, so you found my, my, my ghost account, I guess. You're saying. Oh, <laughs> I was like, that is so brilliant. <laughs> oh God. So yeah, that's the shitty minute. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It, there are horrors that are unspeakable, and that's all I can say. All right, so on that note, should we turn and segue to our main segment? Yeah, let's wrestle through some concepts and think about some themes that are kind of in a weird way related. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that they're related, um, and especially re as regarding the alienation that comes from this idea of mere survival. Hmm. So yeah. this article is by Martin Haglin. Uh, is he Dutch or Danish? I can't remember. He's Swedish. Swedish, okay. Um, and the <laughs> article... Northern European. It's all the same. Fucking <laughs> socialist commies. No, I don't know. <laughs> the article is called Why Mortality Makes Us Free. And uh, my experience with Haglin, you might have more experience than I do, is reading his interpretation of Derrida in that book, Radical Atheism, which... I think for me, probably is the most clear exposition of Derrida I've ever read. For someone who's never really read that much, to be fair. Um, Interesting. I, I haven't read it, um, but it's on my list because I've been really interested in the concept of time lately. And he does a sort of deconstruction of time. So he's got a couple of books, actually, before this one that kind of set the groundwork for this one, I think. Yeah, so he's definitely got a, like a certain theme he's building for himself yeah. through Derrida and others. Um, and so w what's the new book about? I, I've heard about it, but not, not very much. Do you know? No, I don't. I, I mean, I know it's about a sort of like reimagining of spiritual life, but from within a radical atheist perspective. In my mind, so I, um, I, I saw some buzz about it when it came out on Twitter, and I thought it was like a response. It almost felt like a direct response to like Alain de Baton and all those popular philosopher dudes that are trying to talk about like the usefulness and the value of religion and shit like that. But it's like weird new age pop psychology shit. I felt like that's what his book was kind of doing, but in a, in a very substantive and properly philosophical sense, rather than trying to just uh, be on the New York Times bestsellers list, you know? Yeah, I think, and he rightfully, I think, critiques that whole kind of new agey stuff, um, as being a little bit of hogwash. And then the more recent sort of philosophical 
uh, manipulation of that stuff. I think um, it's Sam Harris also that's recently talked yeah, about. Yeah, Sam Harris, that's the other guy I was thinking. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's just quite a wide range of, of people in the sort of uh, atheist, philosophical, intellectual, academic community. Um, and he sees that as kind of like, it's like a pure use value kind of a thing, right? It's like mechanizing religious concepts um, for secular usage and completely divorcing them from whatever religious context that they are you know, typically embedded in. And well, I think and that... I, and do you not also just sense like a profound disdain that Sam Harris has towards religion? So it's really hard for me to even listen, if even if he's trying to say, hey, there are some benefits to meditative practice, there's still just like this... I don't know. There's, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm projecting because I've seen so many interviews with him, and maybe I just have a bad taste in my mouth with regards to a lot of stuff that Harris says. But he just seems to be so disdainful towards religion that I'm kind of like, uh, it just feels like such bad faith that he's writing this book, where he's like, oh, it's popular right now that people are doing meditative practice. How can I write a book that's going to sell a lot and appeal to a lot of people? That's going to kind of pander to them, but still in a way I can be an asshole. Like, that's how it feels, I, whether or not that's totally a misinterpretation. And so it's hard for me to get past that, whereas I don't get that impression with Haglund. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think certainly I get that feeling from Harris. Although I think, to be fair, this is a pretty common trope in that sort of like, free speech atheist community, right? Which is to sort of secularize everything. And, and so that, the assumption that you can easily remove uh, profitable religious concepts non-secular concepts at least and then import them into secularism at, like as if you just uh i don't know removed a piece of machinery and put it into another piece of machinery right and mm -hmm. it just fits perfectly right it's like out of a round hole back into another round hole um mm -hmm. which i think is profoundly uh sort of uncritical in terms of or unanalytical especially in thinking um mm -hmm. it's sort of like saying you eat halal because it's like tasty you know, which like that's mm. fine, but that's not that's not saying much. <laughs> you don't need to have a PhD right. to <laughs> determine that, right? Um, mm. So, yeah, Hagelin's very critical, I think, of that. But he still wants to say that there's a sense in which you can have a spirituality that's profoundly atheist, but in a very different way than that sort of new atheist community. Mm. See, I think he's rightly critical of the new atheist community, but that's sort of shooting fish in a barrel a little bit, I think, for. For most um, most people, um, yeah. the point he tries to really get to here is that you know how can how can you enact a kind of spirituality um, while being sort of a radical materialist or a radical atheist of some sort, right? So yeah, that's his thesis here. So yeah, do not sort of identify um, what Haglund's doing here with what the sort of American and British new atheists are on. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And so the title of the article is Why Mortality Makes Us Free. And here's the little tagline that's underneath it. It's, the heart of spiritual life cannot be found in nirvana or heaven, but in the mutual recognition that this life is our ultimate purpose. And I think the thesis then that we can derive from that, I mean, that's a thesis, I guess, but um, I guess what we could do to uh, unpack that a little bit is his argument is that all formulations of the afterlife, they picture some sort of world that is beyond, uh, that, is, that sort of negates purpose 
and that negates motivation precisely because there is no possibility that something can go wrong. So if you have this state of eternal perfection, then there's no motivation to strive to do anything. And it sort of takes away, if you will, any sort of capacity or value for, let's just say in simple terms, to wake up in the morning and make something of yourself, to pursue any goals. And then so because of that, it completely eliminates freedom as being a meaningful concept. He says, therefore, let's then say, then what could we do to found a meaningful conception of freedom? And he says, it's precisely actually in the fact that our life is mortal. And I, there's a very sort of Heideggerian being towards death uh, theme that I sensed in this article. And it's this idea that we are torn between the past that is beyond us and the future that is that is uh, pulling us forward. And it's that state of being being uh, split between the two that creates this anxiety uh, this and, and that elicits our capacity for concern or care. And he uses the word concern a couple times in this essay, and I, I didn't know if he was intentionally kind of hinting at a sort of reading of Heidegger's being towards death. But nevertheless, that that's kind of what it is, is that because we are ever facing our death, that that's actually what creates a sort of exigent um, and urgent concern for the world, which he then tries to say has an impact then on how it is that we relate sociopolitically because other people are in this common situation and therefore we might say that Haglin has a theory of justice that he's trying to then derive from this as well. That it's all about surviving as we are in this common condition of our being towards death as we are with each other, which again is sort of the mitzain of Heidegger, being with um, as well. Do you think that's a good summary? Do you have issues with that? I mean, I know you're not the biggest Heidegger fan. No, I think you're absolutely right that the, the Heideggerian uh, picture is underlying this whole thing. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the key terms here like concern is supposed to match with Heidegger's care and anxiety he mentioned numerous times, obviously angst, a big Heideggerian term. I think that's absolutely it and it's absolutely why I have such a problem with this whole notion um, is because of my sort of uh, problem with this Heideggerian way of understanding care and anxiety and things like that. Now for Heidegger, the... The argument about anxiety and being in time, he explicitly says that you know anxiety is an episodic phenomenon, phenomenologically speaking. We experience anxiety in episodic fashion, right? Just times here and there. But his argument is that ontologically, it's actually persistent. <laughs> it underlies right. everything that we do all the time, such that um, all of our sort of involvements in the world, all the little projects we do, the relationships we engage in, everything is actually constituted by a fleeing from anxiety to those things. So we involve ourselves in those things so that we can flee from the anxiety, which is always bubbling underneath at every moment. Um, it's one of the reasons why Heidegger thinks boredom is kind of something you can use because it sort of gets, a, gets you away from being involved in the world a little bit and focus on that anxiety. And he thinks you can use that towards the better being towards death, um, mm. which is something he thinks is a more authentic way of existing. And I just, I think that argument is just very, very flawed. Um, and I think that it leads to these notions of justice that I find very unsatisfactory um, and really unbelievable or incredible in the negative sense. Um, but mm. before we get to that, I think we can sort of yeah. talk a little bit more about this anxiety and care stuff. Yeah. Real My quick, I just wanted to say too, I think I think that 
to take this away from the theoretical, everybody likes to say, not everybody, a lot of people like to say, I'm trying not to be hyperbolic, um, a lot of people like to say, it's just so common, I've said it, the, the phrase, we're in it together, right? And there's something about this, the, the logic of we're in it together, that sort of is like, hey man, we're just, we're stuck in this fucking world, man, we gotta just make the most of it. You know, like, we're just fucking in it together. That I think we could also sort of include as like a sort of Hagland theme, right? And it's just so common. Yeah, it's true we are in it together. But how it's often expressed, there's like maybe a, a substantial way that we could do it that would be a critique of Hagland's that I think you and I actually, I, I actually didn't know what you thought of the article until just now. So I, I had a feeling you would be critical, but just from knowing you, but I didn't know if you kind of were recommending it because you liked the article or if you just thought it would be provocative. But but I think there's like a, a Hagland reading of we're in it together, and then there's like a more substantial reading of we're in it together. And I think that that's kind of a way to bring this home. Like when people are like, hey, man, we're just, we're just fucking here, man. We're just in it together. Better work, man. I just want to be in it, man. Isn't that what he said? <laughs> yeah, I don't, th- I don't think we should identify Hagland's uh, notion of equality with, with Beto O'Rourke's like obvious <laughs> no, kind of bad faith centrist, I don't know what policy is stance. <laughs> No, I just love it that that's the fucking quote from Vanity Fair. Well, I just want to be in it, man. It was well, super hey, funny. Yeah, you're you're in we it can only now, do this brother. Together, man. Uh, us, <laughs> us and all the all the billionaires, we're in it together, man. That's right. We're just all in it together, bro. I just <laughs> and I just want to be in it with you guys. <laughs> we can't we okay, can't good. change healthcare without input of billionaires because we're in this together, man. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. So you wanted to go through his argument a little bit more? Yeah. Sure. Um, okay. So let me just quote one little passage here from the near the beginning of the article. He says, "Concern presupposes that something can go wrong or be lost. Otherwise, mm. we would not care. An eternal activity, just as much as an eternal rest, is of concern to no one, since it cannot be stopped and does not have to be maintained by anyone. The problem is not that an eternal activity would be boring, but that it would be or not be intelligible as my activity. So the idea here is that." It's the potential loss of something that constitutes our caring for it or our concern with it, our being involved with it, such that it's even the sense in which an activity is mine in the first place, right? My own sort of mm. personhood is enveloped in this so, so that, you know, you wouldn't even have necessarily, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into this, but there wouldn't even be a really comprehensible notion of personhood unless we had this uh, sort of anxiety about lostness um to found it and mm. I, I find that whole notion just wrong mm. um i think a, a lot of times the anxiety of of losing something whether it's one's identities one's possessions or whatever it is um can sort of lead to particular outcomes obviously it does right but the idea that that's the foundational account of being just seems kind of obviously wrong to me um, I don't think we understand loss until at some point in our lives. Now, for some people, that's eight years old, and that sucks. For others, it's like 18 or 20. Um, and that profoundly reshapes who you are, no doubt. But that's not necessarily the foundational um, part of your identity. There's something there that has to be shaped by loss in the first place. Why does loss feel so terrible? Why is it so tragic? Because it does something to you. It doesn't necessarily begin who you are. Hmm. Does that that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I. It was strange in that quote. 
I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm curious where you're going. I'm curious where you're going. And then as soon as he mentions the word my, I'm, automatic, I'm automatically thrown. And the reason is because it's this notion of possession that I think I have a problem with. And here I'd want to introduce a psychoanalytic term. It's the notion of cathexis. And I think that this is a better way, maybe not a sufficient way, but a better way for me to at least engage with the notion of loss and trauma. And it's precisely because cathexis for Freud and subsequent psychoanalytic thinkers has to do with the idea that you are literally imbuing yourself into the object of concern. It's not your object of concern primarily. It's that you are in that thing. And that there's like this swapping relationship, let's say for you and a loved one. And when that person is lost or when that person disappears, you literally lose a part of yourself because you have, and I know this terminology might be a little bit, you know, economic for some people, but there's an investment. There's an emotional investment. You have invested into that person. And when then that person is gone or when that object is gone, like say it's a, a family heirloom or something like that, when it's gone, you've lost all these other things that have been infused into it. And it's not just you personally. So like a family heirloom, for example, there are other things that are infused into that. The object itself like retains those other people that make the value of that object important. It's not because it was your object. It's not about possession. It's more about the social disruption that is intrinsic in the object. And that's, I think, I think it's a different way of understanding the experience of loss and trauma that for me would be more substantial. Yeah, I think the most important point of that, and you talk about disruption as a kind of key idea there, anxiety and the sort of events that, that cause it are disruptions to life, right? Um, right. And it's important to consider why are they disruptive? Right? That means they sort of set you off of something that you're already on, like some path or quest or journey or whatever it is, right? Or maybe it's just your yeah. own sense of self and your identity involved with all the projects and objects and people that are, are involved in your world. Um, and that's disruptive and bad because it takes you off of those things, right? It doesn't constitute those things, although it does kind of reshape them. And you have to deal with it in such a way that it uh, sort of reconstitutes those things. Um, and mm. that may seem like a really kind of theoretical qualm to have, right? But I think it actually has some cash value because um, the ultimate you know, point for Heidegger is that this anxiety, this angst that undergirds all of our care in the world, all the things that we are involved with in the world, if that makes all those things inauthentic um, because we're just fleeing from angst the whole time, right? So mm. Heidegger wants us to, in some sense, I mean, it's, different interpretations and it's pretty vague exactly what he's getting at with being towards death right but some sense of like reappropriating the angst itself so you can authentically make choices and there's this kind of hope i think especially with the kind of post-heideggerian thinkers that we could sort of reformulate an authentic existence with each other um having that being towards death and that anxiety like sitting on our shoulder the whole time right never sort mm -hmm. of looking away from it or fleeing from it. And that just seems to me kind of hopeless. Um, not in the sense mm -hmm. of like you're, you're giving up on um, some sort of extraterrestrial hope because I think that they, they want to do that, right? But hopeless mm -hmm. in the sense of 
it's just not going to work. Um, mm. I just, I don't see, I don't think anyone actually does that. First of all, I don't think it's like humanly possible. Maybe it's logically possible, but probably not humanly possible um, to truly like appropriate the meaninglessness of it's like inherent anxiety hmm. for everything that you do. Um, but also I just don't think that there's any reason to think that if we reappropriate sort of the anxiety and meaninglessness of the, of the world, that, that leads us to anything good or anything community oriented or even gives us any content about what's good. If anything, I think it's more likely to make us kind of nihilistic um, or maybe just purely hedonistic. Like, fuck it. Everything's meaningless. Let's just go drink ourselves into oblivion because um, <laughs> pleasure is all that matters. Pleasure is good. I know that's good, at least for myself. So I'm just going to do that. It doesn't give you any content or any direction about what could actually be good beyond immediate pleasure. You actually have mm. to do something else to figure that out, right? And so it just seems like it's it's a little bit short-sighted um, to me, and I don't yeah. think it's 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 really workable. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I, I took some notes, and I think that issue of being short-sighted is probably the... Uh, the 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 large structuring issue that all of my critique sort of folds out from and it's because he's clearly thinking some notion of like an enclosed totality and i've been thinking a lot about time lately i've been doing a lot of work on time lately and one of the things that i am contesting is a certain notion of uh, like Augustinian time or even Newtonian time with the idea that time is just this fundamental variable. For Augustine, it was created by God. God is therefore outside of time. But time, as we understand it, is this created entity. And in um, like Newtonian physics, time is this independent variable, right? And um, there's a split in the field contemporary between like relativity, general relativity, and then quantum mechanics that view time in different ways. Um, you know, the, the Schrodinger equation views time as this independent variable, whereas people like Carlo Rovelli, who is somebody that I'm very fascinated with because he engages a lot with the philosophy of time, would say that actually that there's something more fundamental than time, that time is an approximation, but that what is fundamental are events, or what is fundamental are happenings, or... Um, or what is fundamental uh, are well, yeah. I, mean, I guess we could say events. What is it? What's the the way that Bedu? He says there are bodies and language and events, right? There are bodies and languages, yeah. And the, but there are also events or truth. Right? Events, okay. Yeah, well, we can get to that in a minute. But um, and I think there's something really interesting in that because I think this really fits into um, sort of my readings of Deleuze. And I, as weird as it sounds, that it, it. I mean, maybe it's just because everything all fits together in some sort of synchronicity. I don't know. But I think this really actually fits into kind of what we're going to be continuing to develop and especially our last episode where we talked about Dan Barber and this idea of imminence and trying to think radical imminence. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about time in terms of like process philosophy and and the thing that, that Hagland, it seems to be, uh, it seems to me, the thing that sort of like characterizes everything in this article is that he views time as being this this uh, almost this Augustinian conception of time as having a distinct beginning and a distinct end. And it is this independent thing that just exists as an enclosed totality and that, um, and that 
he doesn't allow then for true a true thinking of like imminence a true thinking of process a true a true conception of uh of the more than um and i think that from like a sort of like grander macro sense like that was like the primary sense that uh that i got from this and i would i would rather think in a different way i would rather think of uh, of he talks about like finitude and eternity and stuff like that, but I'd rather think of these concepts in a way that would be a bit more productive. Does that make any sense of kind of like what I'm getting at? I know it's, it's still, a, I'm not being entirely clear, but. Yeah, and I think that it's it's hard to think about this with clarity because it's getting to these really foundational notions of how concepts play with the world, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where it's it's like metaphor abounds, right? Um, but I think this is a, a good place to start talking about the justice issue because you're kind of hinting at um, how that cashes out politically, right? At yeah. the end of the article, he says, the task is to transform our social conditions in such a way that we can let go of the promise of salvation and recognize that everything depends on what we do with our finite time together. The heart of spiritual life is not the empty tranquility of eternal peace, but the mutual recognition of our fragility and our freedom. And I, I get there that there's this really stark binary, right? Either we have an empty tranquility of eternal peace, which is like the the really reductive notion of like Protestant heaven, right? Which is, mm-hmm. I mean, do you remember like when people would talk about, or did you ever read that book called Heaven? That everyone, By Randy Alcorn? I can't believe you remember that name. Because <laughs> <laughs> I read it. <laughs> But people were like freaking out about that book um, back in the day, right? And it was yeah. just, I just, rem- I mean, I don't remember much about it, but I just remember this incredible sense of, really? <laughs> like, this is the thing? And that everyone was just performing this sense of like, oh my God, heaven is going to be so amazing. Read this book. <laughs> it's like, what? Seriously? Um, I think yeah, everyone kind of looks at that and if they're honest for a moment, they're just thinking, this is kind of boring this kind of sucks this doesn't and i know Heglin says it's more than just that it's boring it's also just you can't even like really exist as a person yeah he says there's no freedom it's just like necessity because there's nothing to be concerned about there's no there's no potential because there's nothing that might go wrong or there's nothing that might be dissatisfying and and in one sense i get his argument but in another sense i also think that that's a really sort of limited understanding of conceptions of the afterlife as well do you not think so absolutely right because i mean i think he's actually right that that kind of reductive protestant notion of heaven is a a place where just nothing can really happen right what's that great talking head song heaven's a place where nothing ever happens Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i think he's right but that's the idea that it's either that or this he, he says mutual recognition of our fragility and our freedom it's like it's not either that or finitude that's mm. plenty of religious conceptions can include finitude, right? Like nobody thinks that in heaven everything happens of necessity. Or well, and and in and in Christian theology too, not everybody thinks that it's just simple perfection. You don't become an eternal being or an infinite being in the afterlife. God is still uh, the only infinite eternal being. You are going to have um, sequential 
infinity in the terms of bad infinite in that you just keep adding numbers to numbers, but you're still a finite being. God is still conceived as outside of that notion of temporality, which is, this is, this goes back to Augustine book 11, is it, of Confessions, where he's talking about time? Like, there's still that conception of, of the afterlife that is uh, explained in the Christian tradition that is different than the Randy Alcorn one, but that, that Hagelin seems to be completely ignorant of. You're still... Uh, there's still going to be a sense of dissatisfaction, but without the negative sentiment that attaches to that, right? You're still going to be, I remember some Christians would tell me that uh, what's going to happen in eternity is we're just going to be learning endlessly about the glories of God, right? What that means is that there's still a sense in which God's essence is inexhaustible, and we will forever have some sense of a relationship between ourselves as finite beings and the potential to grow. And he doesn't seem to understand that. Now, now we may not, we may not like that, like that Christian formulation of it. But what it said is that yeah. there's, yeah, but yeah, but there's a different formulation there of the relationship between potential and the infinite that he seems to ignore. Yeah, and there has to be some notion also that you know, according to Orthodox like Pauline Christianity, the afterlife is preceded by the resurrection of the dead, the physical resurrection, right? So yes. you're materially embodied in the afterlife. You're not some like atemporal, a physical. A being floating in the you know ether or whatever, which seems to be the notion that, I, and truthfully, a lot of people do have that notion, right? Right. Um, but no, and I think even people who kind of confuse that notion uh, with the kind of orthodox Christian notion, also they talk about the afterlife as being a place where they have family, right? So there's relationships, right. there's sociality involved, right? And that all kind of seems to be ignored um, in this stark binary here. And then the other side of the binary is the mutual recognition of our fragility and our freedom. We've already kind of talked about how, like, um, recognizing that we are finite and fragile does not necessarily lead towards an authentic kind of freedom, right? Mm. Um, there's there's a at least one, if not several, missing steps. Um, I think it's absolutely the case that many of the worst despotic regimes in the history of humanity have recognized our fragility and our freedom. It hasn't all just been individuals who think they have God and eternity on their side blowing up those who are the naysayers, right? Mm. That's, that's a very limited notion on how these theoretical aspects sort of influence our notions of politics and justice. So I think that mm. that binary really sets up the whole thing to kind of fall. Um, and it's really no surprise to me that, you know, I know Hagelin's not of the new atheist community and he's certainly, certainly much more intelligible and, um, and authentic and has much more to say. And I think worthy of conversation than anybody in that school. I don't want to at all identify those two groups. Um, but I think that really isn't going to be very useful for thinking about concepts of justice. Um, whereas you compare that with a lot of the people who seem to be on the forefront of talking about notions of justice for the future do have kind of more religious conceptions, right? They do speak authentically from their own traditions. Um, that doesn't mean that speaking from a tradition automatically makes you authentic or automatically uh, makes the content of what you have to say um, good or worthwhile. But I do think that this notion that we can kind of escape all spirituality, escape all um, tra traditional conceptions, and by doing that and accepting our finitude, we, we come to some truth about how we should live, uh, is just not workable. Mm. Yeah. So in that binary... I think there's also a way to look at the second part of that binary with just like a real simple empirical observation 
Because he basically says that unless we have a conception of mortality, then we're not going to have this capacity for freedom. But what about children who don't have a conception of mortality? Because this is like the inverse then of the problem that you noted, where you're saying that, well, just because you have a conception of mortality doesn't ensure this sort of like positive freedom or this, this notion of freedom. But let's even also say, but okay, but what about people who don't have a conception of mortality, but nevertheless, they do seem to have purpose and they have concern, but they're not driven by just pure biological instinct and they're not just, they're not consciously aware of mortality. Would he, would, he would have to say that there's something else going on there, right? Like, is it just simply because children do have some sort of maybe more um, undeveloped understanding of beginning and end you know because they see they learn that dogs die and they see that leaves don't last forever but they decay and so there's a, a sort of nascent conception of mortality would he say that but to I, me that I seems doubt that <laughs> right because children they, they don't quite get it they they don't like sit there and say well since i'm going to die therefore i have a purpose that's why i want to go to kindergarten and draw these awesome turkeys based on the tracing of my hand and hang out with my friends right that's not what they say they're like I want to go hang out with friends. And I wonder then if we couldn't say that the sort of Christian conception of the afterlife is much more like that kind of understanding of purpose. It's a childlike kind of purpose. And then you see this constantly throughout the themes of uh, in the New Testament in particular where Jesus is talking about the wisdom of children, right? Um, so there's there's something about child, like the childlike maybe ignorance or naivete that seems to not be burdened by this overwhelming dread of being towards death that is like a foil to that second half of uh, the binary that you know. What do you think? Yeah, dude, that's such a great... I hadn't thought about this at all, but my mind is racing right now. Um, it's so true that children throw themselves into projects with absolute abandon. Right? They right. love music, and they love stories, and they love people and animals and everything else. Right? They have this deep affection more so than really any human because we're stained by our cynicism, any adult human. Um, mm. So they have that, right? And it's, it's clearly not a fleeing from from this anxiety, right? And that's precisely why we find it to be pure, right? Because it's not stained with that anxiety that comes later when you realize mm. about loss and death and everything, right? But children absolutely still understand affinitude. They don't think that they are God amongst men, right? Mm -hmm. um, they may sometimes think the world revolves around them and not understand that it doesn't, but they understand limits. They may not understand the ultimate final limit of death, right? But they do understand that there's certain things they cannot do and that they're restricted and constrained by all these pressures, physical, social, otherwise. Um, they get all that stuff, right? So you can have a notion of finitude that's combined with this kind of more authentic, I don't want to say natural, but natural in the sense of non- um, artificial uh, sense of care, right? And you can have that and build off of that. And um, I think you're absolutely right. That's a, that's an important point to make. And I also want to say, you know, the moral psychology research has found that children from two and three years old form um, categorical imperatives as far as, <laughs> I think we talked about this before in the podcast, they form notions of of sort of what what is it what it is a duty to do morally regardless of context or regardless of anyone's watching you or if you're going to get in trouble or any of those things right they form mm. those extremely early and they don't form notions of guilt and resentment until about seven or eight 
Hmm. So the sort of social punishments and reward system um, that we use to sort of make justice a practical matter, right? To get fairness out of the world, that comes later. And that seems like an obvious sort of social inscription into the child's mind. Whereas the moral duties that um, hopefully undergird that come first. And I think that's an important idea to make here because a lot of the sort of critical atheist skeptical community seems to kind of assume that those are the same thing right that the Mm -hmm. things you're supposed to do the things you ought to do the normative conceptions are all exhausted by these guilt and resentment constraints that society puts on us right it's the classic nietzschean critique of morality and while that's absolutely true for the way justice tends to work it's not the only thing and it doesn't exhaust all of our conceptions of morality uh, and children are a really good example of how that can actually work in a good way. Do you think it's because children just have a completely different conception of time that they don't obsess about this notion of like this simple limited beginning and end, that there's more of an openness, that they kind of are just process philosophers, that they're just kind of like, hey, you know, that things just keep creating you know like food just materializes and and maybe there's like a naivete here but like food just materializes and clothes just come and love is just there and the morning just keeps coming and you know friends appear and opportunities present themselves it's almost like there's this bounty that and maybe i'm just describing my yuppie middle class upbringing in orange county but um but it seems that there's a sense in which you haven't been burdened as much by scarcity. Even even if you grow up in a more impoverished environment, there's still a sense in which it probably takes a while. It might happen sooner than it would for someone like myself who did have a very sort of blessed upbringing. But there's still a sense in which I would imagine that it would it takes a, a while for you to learn that, oh, scarcity is confronting us and then how to read that and understand that. And so it's almost like there's a shifting conception of time itself which relates to potential and the future and openness and then has a bearing on hope and has a bearing on uh, freedom and on your purpose and your role and your place. Wait, Austin, are you saying all children are little Austins? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, man. I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm a narcissist. That's right. No. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right, though, that, you know, the important point is, yeah, maybe children are ignorant of the way the world really works, right? But they're not right. necessarily ignorant of the way that it should be. Or that it could be, exactly. Or yes. that it could be, yeah. And so yeah. that's precisely where we find their innocence and their purity in the midst of what may be ignorance, right? Um, and so they can have this notion of the way things could be, which is bountiful and not have scarcity. And yes, finitude, but also um, works together in such a way that it's for the good. Right? And that's just the way mm. that it is, and it's, and it's good. And you can have that, and life isn't boring. It's full of wonder. That's right? it. Yeah. And also, it's not atemporal, and there's no sense in which they don't have a mindness or a person, uh, as Hagelin would, would sort of uh, notion, right? No, they are, absolutely do. And it's involved in all the same projects that we love. Kids love music, and they love sports, and they love books, and they love all the things that we love as adults, right? Mm. Um, and they engage in them differently because you know, their minds aren't fully developed yet. But they engage them with wonder and care and it's not stained by anxiety and hopelessness and all this kind of stuff. So um, that just, I think is kind of an obvious practical refutation of the notion that 
uh, you can't have like a a, a person, a sense of personhood, a uh, mindness to any of your activities or projects unless you have this anxiety undergirding you. Yeah, children mm. kind of are like an enacted afterlife. Mm. I'm going to need your help here because I have an inclination that I think I've been, I've been thinking about a lot over the past, I'd say, year. I have a feeling that I would want to redefine Haglin's position. And so this is why I need your help because I need you to distill this into normal human words. Um, <laughs> this is for my Hegel heads out there. So uh, I have a feeling that I would want to reorient this anxiety that Haglin notes. I do think that there is an anxiety to the human predicament. That's what William Connolly defines it as, and I love that term, the human predicament, or we could call it the human condition, but predicament presumes that there's something troubling about it that could that we must address or that could be addressed, right? And I like that. I do think that that, that does seem to characterize the human, and there are all kinds of different ways of articulating this, right? Like theologically, there are all kinds of myths, like uh, there are like the four different cycles that you find in like Indian, ancient Indian philosophy that sort of describe, you know, these different epochs that, you know, you finally are in, I can't remember what the fourth epoch is called, I keep forgetting, it's called Kal Kaluga or Kalugi or something like that, where it's like a world that is completely devoid of mythos and it's this world of anxiety, right? Um, and then you find this in uh, the, the Old Testament with the fall, right? There's this sense in which there was a pre-lapsarian state and then a post-lapsarian state, which is where you're dealing with this fall, right? Uh, this, this some this disconnect, this discord, which leads to anxiety and whatever the source is, whether it's the emergence of consciousness or uh, the shift from being a hunter and gatherer to like agrarian societies or whatever. There are all kinds of theories that are wrestling with a very common theme. I really like a sort of like Hegelian reading on this, which is that human beings are torn not between us being uh, finite beings and our recognition that because we are finite, that that sort of like necessitates freedom in the present, but rather that the, the, the tearing or the splitting is precisely in the fact of us standing as finite beings before the infinite. And what I mean by that is the distinction between the bad infinite and the good infinite or the true infinite in Hegel. And that maybe that's it. And maybe there's this sense in which we feel that discord precisely because we sense the infinite, but we can't articulate it. We can't inscribe it. We can't codify it. It is always that, that surplus that we talked about in the Dan Barber episode. And that's the source of the anxiety, whereas Haglin's position is completely enclosed within the bad infinite. It's completely a logic of quantification, right? And he he maybe sort of um, misplaces the source of that anxiety. Does that make sense? Can you distill that into human terms? Yeah, we, you sent me uh, our good friend Michael Burns' um, little essay or part of his book where he discusses Hagland and Mayasu and Beju and um, there's a notion there of, you know, Hagland's ontology is, is one of there is a set of all the things that there is and that's all that there is. Right? Um, mm. And if that's the notion of finitude, it seems to me like it's, that's not the correct notion of finitude. And also that it calls itself finitude only in contrast to some sense of infinity that's like otherworldly or uh, ontologically sort of completely and exhaustively separate from the realm of things that are. And that again, it's like that bad binary, right? Whereas understanding the infinity within finitude, which for like Mayasun Beiju comes from the Cantorian, uh, you know, set of all sets can never exist 
uh, type of a thing, right? There's always going to be uncountably many things. And, you know, mathematics, they talk about transfinite sets and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm not really distilling this down into normal language. I'm just trying to, like, explore <laughs> my thoughts made it more here. complicated. Yeah, I made it, more, made it worse. <laughs> well, but, uh, but a callback would be for our series that we did on Prozorov, which would maybe, like, the first and the second episode that we did in particular. Where we talk about how there can't be a world of all worlds, right? Because yeah. you run into that paradox, Russell's paradox, and there can't be a set of all sets. That there is no such thing as, like, the totality that is just the world. Um, precisely because if the world is the totality of all things that exist – and the world is something that exists, it has to be included in that set. But it's not. It's supposed to be outside of it, which means that there's some sort of paradox there. So the question is, how do we deal with that idea that there's something excessive when we try to enclose everything into a totality? And in that instance, it's precisely this concept of the world. And if that's the case, then that means that there's some sort of, there's some sort of limit. There's, something, there's some problem here that Hagelin doesn't account for maybe that he dismisses maybe he develops this more in his earlier works that i have not read yet um but at least in this article it's not developed and he seems to kind of just presume this notion of a closed totality of that there is a world of all worlds it's this very simple kind of enclosed encapsulated thing and that time is finite because it's precisely enclosed within that thing and we just have to reconcile ourselves with that. That is what the human condition is. We're thrown into that, and that produces the anxiety, and that produces our freedom because we can war against that, which also is a really shitty conception of freedom to me. It's just like this derivative of anxiety. So it's just like we're forever running away from our anxiety, and I get it. That's a very sort of like existential, like I'm sure moody French people smoking cigarettes, staring into the <laughs> void love this. But like I'm like, ah, but there's not – there's – there's no like substantive and positive and productive notion of freedom there that I would want to explore as a as a supplement to this. Not that everything that he's saying is wrong. I'm not trying to shit on him entirely. He's a brilliant thinker. I just think that, okay, you come up to a limit here, but I'd want to kind of push through those boundaries a little bit and then productively engage right on the margins that he doesn't seem to uh, develop. Yeah, I think you're, you're right to use this metaphor of coming right at, at the margins, right? Because I think the, some of the critical notions here that Hagland has and that he's had in his previous work have been really good. Um, but I think, yeah, there's there's a sort of usefulness to this kind of thinking that runs up against the wall um, and that we don't have to run up against that wall, right? We can sidestep mm. it and think a little bit more about contingency and against these notions of the way that the world is necessarily even if they're just sort of um, not necessarily explicit, but implicit in the thinking. Mm. And that's implicit by, by virtue of this, this like obvious binary between um, like the religious conception and the atheist or materialist conception. Um, there's more than that mm. just available, right? I think yeah. didn't Barber talk about something about sort of uh, taking the world of finitude um, seriously by just erasing the infinity beyond, right? Just xing it out, hmm. so to speak, right? The transcendent beyond, and that yeah. that notion of, of of finitude or for him imminence um, doesn't actually capture the depth of innocence, right? It's like a flat sort of uh, ontology, hmm. um, not flat in the sense that like object oriented ontologists talk about. Although <laughs> right, that, that right. probably falls under it in a different way. Um, mm -hmm but flat in the sense of it, it sees itself only in contrast to this other thing, this other transcendence, which it denies. 
rather than understanding mm-hmm. the, that the transcendence lies within the imminence, right? It's the depth of the things as they are that they could be otherwise um, and yeah. perhaps should be otherwise. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's an excellent article. I think people should read it because it's, this is, this is what public philosophy like can do. It, it can prov- provoke these kinds of very interesting conversations. I would say like to uh, encapsulate my feeling about Haglund's position, he says that, um, that freedom is animated by the anxiety, and this is, quote, anxiety of being mortal. So we're animated by the anxiety of being mortal. What I'd want to suggest is that maybe it's better to formulate that as not the anxiety of being mortal, but the anxiety of being torn between finitude and infinity. And I think that presents a completely different metaphysical and ontological frame that also has bearing on sort of socio-political things, which we didn't get into as much, but it's precisely that there is more of a potency there that allows for productive creation within the sort of being torn between finitude and infinity that I would want to formulate it as. So that's, I think that's, if I could distill everything that I would, if someone was like, oh, what do you think about this? I would say I'd want to reformulate that in that way. I think that's really good, dude. I think you should stop there. Cool. Sweet. So now we're going to switch to our final segment of the episode. This is called The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us hope and meaning in a world that might be devoid of such things as we stare into the abyss and are being towards death as we're torn between finitude and infinity <laughs> or perhaps the anxiety of being mortal. Who knows if we can resolve that debate? But one thing we can do is we can talk about things that are giving us fleeting pleasures. So, Troy, what's getting you going, bruh? This wasn't just fleeting pleasures, man. This was like experiencing the transcendence within imminence. Oh, um, did you get like assumed into heaven for a moment? Apotheosis? I did. I did. I'm the most predictable asshole in the world, dude. Is this I, music? I went to, yeah, it's about music. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I have two loves, right? Other than like my job and my career in philosophy. It's music and basketball. And basketball sucks ass right now. So it's got to be music that's saving me. Oh, are you all discouraged because the Lakers suck now? Well, obviously. Oh, man. Because they mean, suck still... and it can't possibly get better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So music. What's giving you joy in the world of music? Dude, I've been to two concerts since my last Sticky Leaves. And I know my last Sticky Leaves was also about a concert that I went to. But it's just been a ridiculous like few months of amazing shows and uplifting shows in very different ways that have profoundly affected me. And if anybody knows me, knows that I'm not profoundly affected by many things. Um, Mm. And music is one of those few things that does it to me. And and I've had this experience twice in the last week and a half. Uh, In a time when I've been like really, really busy and it's been hard to make time and I feel guilty for doing things that are sort of for myself. And yet I still Mm. have these experiences. It's been really, really uplifting. And uh, it's been the very definition of a sticky leaf. Um, Sticky leaf. So... The first concert I went to was last weekend. I saw the band Daughters uh, live, and they um, I recommended their last album on one of our newsletters previously. They are a kind of noise rock group that uh, released a few albums in the early 2000s and then broke up for about eight or ten years and then came back in 2018, released a new album called You Won't Get What You Want, and really came out with tons of buzz like it was the album of the year in a number of different publications um and i 
absolutely love the album. It is dark and twisted mm. and scary, terrifying. It's the kind of album that if you listen to, um, like lying on your bed at night with the lights off and your head like over your head over your headphones on, you're gonna frighten yourself. It's gonna mm. unnerve you. Um, and I think the thing I love most about it is that the lyrically and musically the album doesn't try to scare you with very particular content doesn't like say oh my god i'm gonna kill a bunch of people or i'm gonna, I'm gonna kill myself or um everything's so horrible because this happened or whatever right uh instead it has these very vague notions of like um being there's like one there's the last song on the album is called guest house and it's basically just a guy trying to get into a house and he can't get in and he's yelling let me in let me in and it's this very like a horror movie context less scene that's just pure horror because you couldn't put any sort of content into it it's like primal mm-hmm. almost and the album is fantastic for that reason and they were fantastic live because every bit of the energy and power of the album was reproduced live. And anybody who likes playing guitar and doing it in such a way that's you can like repurpose noise for emotional and effective impact, this will be like one of your favorite albums of all time. Um, mm-hmm. So that show was unnerving and terrifying as well, in addition to that album. And then last night I saw one of my favorite bands for a long time, Low. Um, they were an indie band in the early 90s they were part of like the original slow core movement i don't know if you're familiar with that term at all it's like Mm -hmm. bands post like the grunge era and post the hardcore underground era decided to play extremely slow and methodical and sort of have this kind of melancholic uh feel to their um to the pace of their music and uh red house painters was a big group in that movement codeine was and then low was another one that was in that uh, group and i first saw them actually back in college with our good friend diana previous guest in the podcast hmm. um and i remember i didn't know who they were but they blew away whichever band they were opening for because i don't remember who that band was that i actually went to see <laughs> um hmm. and they've always been kind of this slow methodical melancholic band but their last album that just came out a few months ago was called double negative and it um it's really profoundly affected me in the last uh, couple of weeks that I really kind of hunkered down and listened to it before this show. Um, they've incorporated sort of noise and glitch and drone elements and ambient elements into their sort of uh, slowcore indie uh, sound. And okay. I think that the um, frontman Alan Sparhawk has mentioned in interviews that he got into a skiing accident um about like a year or two ago while they were developing this album and he almost mm. died and like got punctured his punctured his lung a couple times in his accident and then that plus the experience of 2018 kind of socially and politically um made them think that they couldn't put together an album of songs that immediately make sense or that are immediately engaging they had to incorporate some sort of like negativity that's my term i'm imputing into them into the music mm-hmm. and so they incorporated all these glitch and drone and ambience uh and noise elements into the music and it's just it's one of the best things i've heard in a long time um it's not for everybody 
you kind of you have to be really patient and you have to wait for things to develop on their own in the music it's not going to give you a chorus that's going to like infect um your brain immediately like mm. on the radio um, yeah that's what i was going to ask you like what is the appeal and i don't mean this in a snarky sense but like w- if you could describe why this gets you more than like listening to weezer or something like that yeah that's a good contrast right i think the the reason is because weezer is easy and i love weezer blue album's fantastic and there's lots of times where I just want to listen to Blue Album, right? Hmm. And I even think Pinkerton's better than Blue Album. But Blue Album's like the classic, you know, pop record. Um, but there's something about working through something. There's something about how music can sometimes incorporate the struggle that life entails, right? Hmm. So you know how we've mentioned before that, and I've made the case before that pain isn't always bad. Mm-hmm. Like if you my classic example is like playing basketball. Um, if you took out the pain from playing basketball, it would lose something, right? It's not just like getting a shot where the pain is a sort of necessary thing, but necessary externality, but you could do without it. Like it'd be nice if they didn't have that, right? If you actually got rid of the pain of playing basketball or whatever other sort of process you might love engaging in, um, it would miss something. There's something about the, the struggle that actually sort of makes it more worthwhile. Mm. And music can do that too sometimes, working for it in a positive way, right? Not like in a purely functional way where it's, I'm just going to make this hard for you, like it's a Rude Goldberg machine. That's, I think, mm. bad. And sometimes experimental music is that for its own sake, and it's not good for that reason. But when a, when a, when a musician or a group does this well, you can actually work for the thing and it's infinitely more rewarding when you get it because in some way it's able to capture um, the sense in which struggle and pain and pleasure are all kind of wound up together in this difficult and complex web and they're not easily distinguishable from one another. And mm. I think it's very rare that, that, a, that a piece of art really captures that and maybe because I love, love this band for a long time that seeing them go down this road is especially effective for me. Mm. Um, but I know a lot of other people have too because it's gotten really rave reviews from a number of um, publications. Really kind of uh, polarized uh, responses I've found. Either people hate it because they think that it's just gobbledygook or people love <laughs> it for the same reasons that I'm uh, detailing here. So um, mm. those two records, I mean, they've they got to be two of the best records I've heard in the past couple of years kind of come out at similar times it's pretty crazy but daughters you won't get to what you want for your terrifying existential dread and then low double negative for your more sort of low-key soft existential dread Mm. either way they're both very 2018 but hopefully not 2019 not or not twenty. Or they are twenty nineteen, or they're not twenty nineteen. Very twenty eighteen in the sense of the. We don't know what twenty nineteen is yet. We know twenty eighteen was the year of dread. We don't know about twenty nineteen yet. <laughs> it has right. to end before we can say what its identity is. That's true. No, I always appreciate your sticky leaves because, like I told you, ma'am, a, a few times, I just have not been paying attention to the cutting edge of music in the past few years in particular. So. I listen to a lot of like, you know, the old stuff, Bad Religion and Pennywise and, you know, like old like pop punk, skate punk shit and like old like rock stuff, just whatever's on my playlist of old, right? Um, Or like the iTunes playlist of like their modern punk and then their like classic punk playlist. Like that's pretty much what I listen to most of the time. 
so it's always good when you and we don't have the this week in hip hop anymore with Burns. So I don't get like that fresh influx of music. So you are kind of like my source for introducing me. And your taste of music is so broad and so varied that I'm always like, who? What? Okay. <laughs> All right. Anything from like IDM, EDM to like weird experimental noise shit. So although today I am going to be going to a uh, like folk punk festival at some point. So I'm excited to report back. Maybe that'll be my sticky leaves next week. We'll see. Or is if anybody, I don't talk about it at all, then it wasn't very exciting. <laughs> is anybody of nut playing? No, but they're all like local like folk punk band, or folk, uh, folk punk bands. You might know of some of them, but I don't know. Maybe I'll force it to be my sticky leaves next week so that I can recap it for you. Sweet. Yeah, but, uh, this podcast kills fascists. <laughs> That's right. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in for this week of Owls at Dawn. If you got anything you want to contribute, any questions you want to ask, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Dawn. Of course, you can hit us up on Insta at owls underscore at underscore Dawn as well. You can email us, owls at Dawn podcast at gmail.com. If you go to iTunes and you leave a five-star rating and a review with a question, as you heard at the beginning of this episode, thank you, Trey, for that. We will also engage with that. Um, where else? How, how? Is there anything else that I'm missing here? Did you mention owlsatdawn.com if you want to leave a comment on the episode? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can do that. Listen, there are places. We're out there, guys. Hit us up. You can find us. We uh, shouldn't be Smoke signals. Yeah, smoke signals. Pigeon carrier. Um, yeah, and of course, then there's bonus episodes, bonus content, newsletters, the capacity to uh, recommend future episodes. If you go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn, it's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And there will be a new bonus episode, actually, uh, that should be released relatively soon after this episode is released. So if you are a patron, make sure you check out for that. If you're not a patron and you want access, cruise on over to Patreon and you will see how to listen to Troy and I do some Owls After Dark shit. Um, I think that's pretty much it, right, dude? Just one more thing, man. What's going on? That's the Dania Americana.